to Ephesians chapter 3. I think every generation, I'm sure, is met uh, with times where they find themselves in, uh, in circumstances of history where we feel like history is being made. Unprecedented things are happening. And we say one day, you know, when history books are written, we'll look back at this time and think such and such about it. And uh, often it, it's true. We, we, found, we find that there were generations before us that lived through meaningful times that have seemingly changed the course of history. And history is something that's studied often. And it's studied often as, as people, as they organize history, as they seek to put uh, meaning to it. One theologian says, what is history about? Historians study kings, queens, presidents, generals, inventors, nations, wars, battles, peace treaties, and geography. And they do so as they struggle to bring meaning to a chaos of events. What they want to understand is what is the culmination of history? Where is history leading? It is said that the Greeks had, an, had a view of the overall patterning of history that was a reoccurring cycle of birth, growth, decay, and death. Or maybe it's leading as Sir Thomas More's 16th century book, Utopia, posits that there could be a utopian society with, where private ownership and religious dogma do not exist. And so people live in communal harmony with one another. Or maybe Marx gets it right, as he saw history as a struggle between classes, eventually leading to a classless society. What about the modernist view that gained acceptance and prominence in the post-World War II era, where everything continues in, progress, in progressive epochs or evolution into an hom homogenous society? Things are just going to get better and better according to a utilitarian scale of better and better. Maybe we see the warning calls or, or I mean, certainly they believe them to be warning calls of those that think that we're leading towards destruction, climate destruction. If we don't change our habits now, then... We won't have a future. John Stott observed that secular history concentrates on wars, battles, and peace treaties, followed by yet more wars, battles, and peace treaties. The Bible concentrates, rather, on the war between good and evil, on the decisive victory won by Jesus Christ over the powers of darkness, 
on the peace treaty ratified by his blood and on the sovereign proclamation of an amnesty for all rebels who will repent and believe. He says again, secular history concentrates on the changing map of the world as one nation defeats another and annexes its territory and on the rise and fall of empires. The Bible concentrates rather on a multinational community called the church, which has no territorial frontiers, which claims nothing less than the whole world for Christ and whose empire will never come to an end. Here's what I believe Paul has in view as he presents the content of his ministry in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 3. If you remember, as we've been going through Ephesians, in chapter 1, Paul opened his letter to the Ephesians with this Trinitarian with a, with a treatise on the Trinitarian operations in salvation, the foundation of the Ephesians' cause to rejoice, ultimately their cause of unity. In chapter 2, we heard of how the power of the gospel is displayed in the triune God's new creation work in bringing dead sinners to life in Christ. And how God's divine work of reconciling dead sinners to himself also produces the basis of reconciliation between fellow believers. And implying that the Jewish Christians would see the good news that God was fulfilling his promise to Israel through Christ and the inclusion of the Gentiles. And now here we are in the middle of chapter two or in chapter three. It's it's almost the middle of the letter. It's this part of the letter that that we can see Paul is uh, categorically explaining the earthly witness to the exalted Christ. And my prayer this morning is that we would rejoice in the work and in the mighty work of God through his ordained means, through his doctrine and truth that we would join with Paul as we approach verse 13 where he's bowing his knees before the father where he's asking these Ephesian Christians to be granted according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith we would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Before Paul gets to this prayer, he has this digression. Let us read it together in Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ 
which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it's now been revealed in his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power to me. The very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authority and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart of my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us now to hear your word. Help me, Lord. You know how much help I need through each day. How much more now is the word is to be preached. Your truth is to be heralded. Help us. And not to us, Lord. Not to us, but to you be ascribed glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the last time I opened the scriptures to you, we took note that this section of Ephesians chapter 3, as I said before, is really a digression before his prayer, which begins in verse 14. And I divided this section into three categories or themes, into context into content and consequence. As we addressed 1 through 7 last time, we saw that it was largely related to context. Paul referring to his calling, referring to uh, the agency of the Spirit within that calling, his stewardship of God's grace, things that were given to him, revelation that was made known to him. Well, as we addressed the context here in 8 through 11, we see the content of his digression. What was on Paul's mind or what was what was the spirit working through Paul to bring to bear before he speaks such glorious words as he will in verses 13 through 21, leading to this doxological phrase to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well, There's much to be had in the content of what Paul said. And we can go about and we can look at the riches of Christ, this word administration, communion, confident access, boldness. 
but we can also look at it categorically. My intent this morning is to look at the content through what theologians recognize as the threefold arrangement of salvation in Scripture. If we were to order them chronologically, they're known as the Pactum Salutis, the Historia Salutis, and the Ordo Salutis. The the covenant of redemption in the Pactum Salutis, the history of salvation in the Historia Historia Salutis, and the order of salvation in the Ordo Salutis. This morning, though, they're presented in a different order. They're presented in the order of the Historia Salutis, the history of salvation, the Ordo Salutis, and the order of salvation, and then finally the Pactum Salutis, the eternal covenant of redemption. For it seems that the Spirit's intent is the tell of an event that happened in history, which then is presented as the foundation of the saving work of the Spirit, and that finds its ground, it's founded and grounded in the eternal purpose of God. In verses 8 and 9, we can recognize the Historia Salutis. For those of you that are not familiar with these terms, the Historia Salutis refers to actual to the actual events in space and time by which God brings salvation to his people. Creation, the fall, the flood, the call of Abraham, the exodus, the numbering of the servants in the tabernacle, the captivity, the life and death of Christ, Pentecost. All of these are events in the, of the Historia Salutis. On the one hand, they are true events of cosmic history. They actually happened in space and time. But in another sense, they bear theological significance because they come in order to fulfill and accomplish the eternal decrees of God. Paul says in verses 8 and 9, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages had been hidden in God who created all things. You see, there's a progression there. There's a historical progression. Paul says he's to preach and to bring light. To preach to the Gentiles and to bring light what is the administration of the mystery which was for ages hidden in God who created all things. It's interesting that as Paul uh, speaks of this progression, he goes back to the very beginning that God created all things. He does so for a very, it seems like a specific reason where Paul is intending to connect old creation with new creation. When God created all things, how did he do it? By the word. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was God. That may be John 1, actually. And the word, <laughs> the word was with God. Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1. And God said, let there be light. 
There was a preaching that brought forth the light upon creation. To preach and to bring light. To preach and to bring light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages had been hidden in God who created all things. What comes before there will be light or let there be light. And the earth was void and formless and the spirit hovered over the void. There was there was a hiddenness to the form of the earth before what for God preaches and light comes. There was a hidden mystery, if only to the heavenly realm, if only to those other created beings who may have been present watching the creation of the world. And God brings forth what was hidden into light. And so it is in the Historia Salutis, where we've been reading through the Old Testament in type and shadow, veiled, separated by curtains, strict orders of do not look, do not touch, do not eat. Only certain ones having access to the holy things and holy objects and even more only one certain person on one specific day who's able to have access to the holy of holies hidden mystery longing to see God dwell with his people and often at times when God dwelled with his people in mighty in glorious ways, they recoiled back and said, No, don't look at us anymore, Moses. Cover your face. This mystery is in relation to the unfathomable riches of Christ. We are invited here to read our Old Testament scriptures and see what was mystery there, though has now been unveiled, the unfathomable riches of Christ. For that was what the history was playing out to. That is what God was establishing in the Old Testament, what was happening and playing out in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So that at the resurrection of Christ, the, the blessing of the Spirit, there was now an unveiling. There was now a declaration to preach and to bring light. In the old creation, God said, let there be light. In the new creation, the word is the light of the world. The word has come. The final word has been spoken through Christ, the son of God. And here Paul is saying that this gift of grace, this grace was given to him 
to preach this to the Gentiles, to bring light, to continue on in the history of salvation. Pastor Dana alluding to that all these things continue on until the full inclusion of the Gentiles. And God's purposes march on. For they are rooted in his eternal decree. We imagine we can thwart God's purposes with our actions. We can somehow undo them, somehow manipulate them towards things that are more palatable to us. And yet they march on still. We are to see in the history of salvation, our history, we are to see our participation in it, that we have been preached the unfathomable riches of Christ. We who live now have been, who have the mystery has been revealed to us by the creator of all things who now makes us new created in him. How is it that one is newly created? We know it happens. The history of salvation works, tells us how it has happened or on uh, what grounds it happens. How does it happen? That's the theological understanding of the order of salvation, the ordo salutis. Richard Mueller in his dictionary says of the Ordo Salutis, he says the Ordo Salutis refers to the application of the great acts of God, Historia Salutis, in the life history of the individual believer. Mueller again says a term applied to the temporal order of causes and effects through which the salvation of the sinner is accomplished because of their emphasis upon the eternal decree and its execution in time. The reform developed the idea of an ordo salutis in detail in the 16th century. Where do we see this in our passage this morning? Well, we see it in verse 8, but we also definitely see it in verse 10. First, in verse 8, Paul says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. We know the story of Paul. We know that he was not always a Christian. We know that he sought to persecute the way as it was known. We know that he was a handmaiden to the martyred death of Stephen, the unrighteous act of Stephen. He held the cloaks of those that stoned a man to death. And he knew it. Probably was reminded of it often that he would write to the Romans and he would say that he, he desires to do one thing, but he does something else. Where he comes to the end of that passage and he says, oh, wretched man that I am. This is the Apostle Paul. This is 
the one who we imagine to be, if he walked, he would have walked tall, right? He, we, we, he would be a mega church pastor. He would be the one that would garner the stage of thousands of people. I don't know that I've ever heard a mega church pastor tell their congregation that they're the least of all the saints. That they're, by that he's saying, I'm, I am the most in need of God's grace. God is in the business of showing his strength through the weakness of his instrument. This idea of ordo salutis, whereby there's this order of salvation where regeneration comes to the believer where he's been given the gift of faith and repentance of union with Christ whereby he's declared right before God and in the same time and in the same under the same union that not only are you declared right before God but then God begins to work this righteousness in you Paul understood this For us, we see this as God works this righteousness in us. We are now as a church to make known the manifold wisdom of God. Our sanctification is to make known the manifold wisdom of God. Paul says in verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Oh, that we would declare the manifold wisdom of God. That the manifold wisdom of God would be able to be seen in our lives. But we often doubt it. We often think that it is not for us. I'm not special. I'm not trained. I'm not learned. I haven't come to a, enough state of perfection or, or sanctification. Certainly not through me. And yet here we have Paul to me the very least of all the saints. One pastor, theologian, rightly says is that if we were God, we wouldn't save adulterers and murderers like David, religious terrorists like Paul, doubters like Thomas, deniers like Peter, or wretched sinners like you and me. May we rightly praise the Lord. For the 
unfathomable riches. of Christ unless we think that there is something we can do to thwart God's plan to undo it in the least way Paul makes sure they understand the eternal purposes of God as the root and foundation of this salvation the pactum Salutis. Mueller is helpful. Again, he defines the pactum salutis as the covenant of redemption, the pre-temporal intertrinitarian agreement of the Father and the Son concerning the covenant of grace and its ratification in and through the work of the Son incarnate. In this covenant, the Son covenants with the Father in the unity of the Godhead to be the temporal sponsor of the Father's testamentum in and through the work of the mediator. In Ephesians, Paul says this was in accordance with the eternal purposes which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did God look upon the world and say, oh, it's gotten pretty bad. I'm, we better do something about it. And that there was some blasphemous counsel between the Father and the Son. Where the Son agrees to come and save everybody. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that it is in accordance with the eternal purpose. Yes, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, but it was according to the eternal purpose. John's gospel is probably the most explicit gospel as to the covenant of redemption that you can read. For Christ time and time again says that he comes because he was sent. He comes to do the will of the Father. He d comes to do things that were prepared beforehand. He comes to accomplish something. Paul roots the Historia Salutis in these eternal purposes, in the Pactum Salutis. So that as we understand the order of salvation in our lives, we might not draw ourselves to ourselves, draw our thoughts to ourselves in, in our faith and have faith in our faith. But draw our minds to Christ, to the Historia Salutis. So we may have assurance that we will be raised as he was raised. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Blessed be the Lord Jesus Christ. The history of the world is not working towards a classless society. The history of the world is not working towards a, an earthly 
uh, fleshly utopian society. The history of the world is not in an endless cycle of, of, of birth, life, decay, and death. The history of the world is not determined by kings and nations and governors. The history of the world climaxed in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it culminates in the eminent return of our Savior. All things are working towards that. We find ourselves in, in the twists and turns of life, questioning all sorts of things that, that, that we have done. Oftentimes, looking back, thinking we have, could have done something different. Oftentimes, correct. What would we expect? It's to look back and go, I, that was perfect. I couldn't have done anything, I, I couldn't have done it any more right. Then you falter and trip the now because you feel like you have to take perfect steps. Seek to honor the Lord in your dealings as I hope you had done in the past. Remember that God is working his history through you towards the culmination of it, the return of Christ, the eternal purposes. Understand that God does this and carries this out by the least of this world. Those not exemplary according to worldly standards. We would not have understood it. it. I mean, they didn't understand it immediately when Paul was saved. Cornelius is like, I've heard of this guy. This is the guy you want me to talk to? This is the one? How could it be? And then with time, you see the working of God's providence in the life of Paul. But Paul never unsees what he has done. Here he is the least of all the saints. In other places, he's the least of the apostles. If Paul could live there with his assuredness in the righteousness of Christ and the internal purpose of the Lord, I believe by the Spirit of God we can too. Paul invites us, or Paul, the Spirit invites us to, to live in these moments humbled by the unfathomable riches of Christ. And we see that us, as we're gathered on this commemorative day of God's new creative work in Christ, to read, sing, and proclaim of his mighty deeds, we gather as his people, symbolized as a body united to a head, as a temple fitted for the presence of God. 
May we relish in the opportunity to do so. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what was hidden in mystery in ages past has been made known through Christ. We thank you that that light has been brought to us by your spirit. That we who deserve no title of saint or heir or child of God have been brought near. May we take joy in your eternal purposes. Lord, sustain us as you march history towards the culmination that is the return of our Savior. We ask these things in the name of our Lord. Amen.